It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. And today's guest is PublishersMarketplace.com's number one ranked agent for science fiction and fantasy with Trident Media Group returning for a second-ish time to the show. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Mark Gottlieb. Mark, welcome back yet again to the show. Hey, thank you for having me back on the show. We had you um, a couple months ago. And uh, Skype hated us, the computer hated us, something happened to the recording. So unfortunately, we did have you on previously, and something went haywire, and you have graciously come back to join us. Descended down from your ivory tower in New York City and graced us here on Skype today to to talk agenty stuff uh, again. So thank you again for, for joining us on the show. It's much appreciated. Thanks. Uh, maybe we'll have like a bloopers episode from that previous, <laughs> you know, misrecording. So it's been a, a couple of months since we chatted. What is the scuttlebutt around the Trident Media Group water cooler? What's what's going on in the industry? What's everybody kind of talking about maybe the last day or the last week? What's at the forefront in the industry right now, would you say? Well, this is actually what is considered to be the slow time in our industry. A lot of publishers are owned by um, European companies. And, um, you know, for instance, Hachette is a French company. Penguin Random House is owned by Bertelsmann, um, which is, you know, they own Sony Music Group. It's a German company. And as you may know, the Europeans have a tendency to take the month of July or August off, sometimes both. And so they're always AWOL. And uh, if people need to make big purchases and ask the higher-ups, they're always away, certainly on a summer Friday in, in book publishing. In past years, it used to be a lot quieter, but now it's sort of odd. It's, um, it just seems there's still more going on, lots to do. The only problem is, you know, <laughs> you make phone calls or emails and people just aren't there. You know, they're, they're away for an entire month. But, uh, on holiday. On holiday, yeah, I guess. But um, certainly if you work in foreign rights and you specifically deal with, you know, foreign publishers only or translation publishers, you know, all that business is basically on hold until maybe like two weeks from now they'll start trickling back into the office. They'll come into the Trident offices for meetings early before the Frankfurt Book Fair, which is coming up in October. That's like, that's the big one between the London and Frankfurt Book Fair the entire city in Frankfurt, Germany gets clogged up. Uh, it's like picture Comic Con, multiply that times eight, and you have you know the Frankfurt Book Fair. But the wow, yeah, yeah, the foreign publishers they'll be in the office to basically get in their meetings with us before the fair even starts because they want to know what's new and hot on the market before any of their competitors do, and they want to guarantee they they get a meeting with us. Yeah, we wanted to discuss uh, rights, rights and more rights, going to fight for your rights, apparently, in the uh, literary industry. But we wanted to cover foreign rights, audiobook rights, and film rights today, because you you and your role as an uh, agent with Trident uh, establish these rights for the clients that you serve. How many clients do you have, Mark, you say, well, approximately? Well, personally, you know, for me, it's, you know, maybe a couple dozen or so. For the agency as a whole, you know, there's... There's probably over 800, maybe close to 1,000 authors across the entire agency. And uh, so there, you know, the agency does quite a bit of work. And I'd say, you know, foreign rights ends up comprising about a third of our overall business. And so any individual author, you know, when you begin to look at your own catalog of books, let's say you have, you know, a few ongoing series or something like that, you know, inevitably... Foreign rights ends up looking like a third of your overall portfolio. Audiobooks maybe about 
you know, 10% of your overall income in it. It's nothing to, you know, to scoff at. I think U.S. publishers used to, they weren't so interested in, you know, the audiobook rights or, the, or especially the foreign rights. But now that the landscape has changed, especially with, you know, Amazon being in the picture, publishers now are way more aggressive about trying to hang on to foreign rights, audiobook rights if they can. There are publishers that make it a, you know, mandatory. When you do a deal with them, I know HarperCollins, Hachette, they tend to make a point of keeping audio in all their deals. And in very few instances can you leverage that out unless maybe, let's say you're doing a, a deal for a big name author, you know, that then you have some leverage or let's say there are, you know, multiple offers on the table and one of the other publishers, you know, is letting you keep audio or foreign or something like that. You know, you can oftentimes hang on to that for the client despite what you know the the u.s publishers may be claiming you know is their kind of top-down mandate so and i think it's important to hang on to these rights because you know certainly when you're going out there and approaching publishers these are all different arrows i guess you have in a quiver and you're trying to hit a target and the fewer of them you have you know the harder it is sort of to hit that target you know walking up to a publisher approaching them, you know, as maybe a newer author, maybe an author trying to make their debut or their major debut. You know, if you're only approaching them with, you know, just for instance, the US rights or the print rights only, and the audio is, is not a part of it, or the you can't be offering up foreign or UK rights, it's less attractive to to a publisher. So I think you need to really kind of arm yourself with this stuff. It's a big savings when you have a literary, literary agency sell foreign, foreign rights or audiobook rights for you directly, since comparatively our commission is much smaller than that, you know, of uh, what a U.S. publisher takes. Uh, you know, they take upwards of 50% on sub rights. They recoup all their costs. Comparatively, our commission being smaller, our standard commission is 15%. It usually... You know, 85% of money's come to the author. It's a direct sale and royalty and a huge savings. And so um, I find it's important to work with an agency in these matters. Plus, when you place foreign rights with a U.S. publisher or audio rights, whatever, they could not only sit on a shelf and get dusty, worst case scenario, if they sell to a third-party publisher in the best case scenario, they have a sub-rights person who deals with thousands of authors, tens of thousands of titles. They don't do any hand-selling. They don't give it a second thought. And they just sort of throw this catalog at a foreign publisher and says, here. They say, here, have at it. Whereas with us, <laughs> we attend the London Book Fair on behalf of our clients, the Frankfurt Book Fair. We meet with foreign publishers face-to-face. -face. We say to them, you know, how are you doing? What's your market looking like? Um, what are you really hungry for? What are you looking for now? And we cater a specific title or author to them and hand sell rather than just throwing something at them mm -hmm. and hoping that it sort of sticks. Mm -hmm. So I think that is of huge benefit to an author in thinking about, you know, their, their rights. So an agent will personalize it more, whereas a publisher may... Kind of just, eh, we got this. Eh, Spit in the wind. Sling it out there. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot more thought goes into it. I mean, and 
also, you know, as an author, it's about your presence there at these book fairs. For instance, if you attend the Frankfurt Book Fair, we take over 150 meetings with foreign publishers there. Obviously, we meet with foreign publishers throughout the year and do many more meetings than that. That's all we have time to do while we're there, you know, for these four days at the book fair or so and these book parties we attend. But on, before the book fair even starts, at the Frankfurter Hof, which is this very old world hotel, kind of akin to, if you ever saw Wes Anderson's uh, The uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, it looks yeah, like yeah. something right out of that. Um, <laughs> but we take meetings there before the book fair with the most important publishers, the, the German publishers, the UK publishers, they pay the most, right? The German economy is very strong. The Brits pay in the pound, which is, you know, tends to be stronger than the euro and was stronger than the dollar. Um, and we have a big presence there. We take up, you know, about a quarter of the lobby. You can walk into the room and know our agency's there. You won't have to see a sign on our table. Whereas most other agencies or publishers they attend there, they have a very small presence. Maybe they have like one table. They sit in a stairwell. If they didn't, you know, think to <laughs> reserve room for themselves, I think it's important for a client to have an agency that has a really big presence in those places. Why do you think it is that publishers are going so aggressively after those audiobook rights more more so than, than before? Well, I think, you know, part of it, it's actually sort of interesting. It's, it's not, it, it, I'd say it's a few things. One is you have rights people in audiobook departments who work at publishing companies who don't want to have their toes stepped on. Mm -hmm. They want to feel like they have a lot that they can produce in audio. And frankly, they don't like dealing with agents because we tend to make them do the right thing by the author. And <laughs> folks tend to want to do what they want, when they want. They want to publish how they want. And um, you know, they don't want to have to acquire those rights separately. It's easier for them if they can kick back and just do whatever they want. But it's not in the interest of an author when that happens because those rights can end up sitting on a shelf and getting dusty if the publisher gets you know foreign or audio they might never exploit those rights properly for instance when a publisher produces audio in-house that can be a good thing for an author but the tendency is that certainly for digital audio they tend to work through audible which is an amazon owned company their sister company of brilliance audio brilliance does the hard goods you know they do the cd mp3 audio mm -hmm. as opposed to mp3 audio and what happens is that's a toll on the road for the us publisher and with subrights you know be they foreign or audio or you know book club or small print whatever those rights inevitably you only see 50% of them in the proceeds as an author. That's also after both the domestic publisher, you know, the U.S. publisher who got a hold of the uh, audio rights or the foreign rights, after they recoup their advance, their costs of operation. That's after, you know, for instance, let's say the independent audio or, you know, outside foreign publisher recoups their advance and costs of operation. And so by the time the money reaches the author, if it ever does, it's like minuscule. And just to get back to your original question about, you know, maybe why these publishers are scrambling to keep audio, they also feel that they lose some of the readership to people who might be listening to the books in audio as opposed to just reading it. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there is some overlap. But on the whole, there's a pretty loyal audiobook listening audience 
and a pretty loyal, you know, audience who prefers the printed book. So I don't think it really cuts into sales so much. Do you think there will be any kind of eventual shift uh, as we've seen print books? Uh, there's people who talk about, you'll never take away my print books. It's four, <laughs> Fahrenheit 451 out here. Ebooks kind of over, have overtaken print books to an extent. Do you see audiobooks becoming the go-to medium in the future? I think there will always be you know, various formats available for those who are loyal to a particular kind of way of reading and you know and it depends it sort of depends where you are in your life too like it's exp it can be expensive to buy the print books they accumulate they take up space but some people like it because you know it's essentially a technology which has been perfected it's a just a beautiful and artful way to read a book but then there are people who want like folks do with um being able to carry their entire music library in their pocket there are people who want to be willing to do that, you know, with ebooks who aren't so concerned with the tangibility. And then, you know, I suppose there are folks who, a lot of audio listeners, for instance, might be elderly, they might be disabled. Maybe you get to a certain part in your life or something happens to you where audiobooks are easier. Certainly, you know, for business books or people who are commuters, they tend to listen to more audiobooks while they're on their way to work or at the gym. It's a popular thing to do on long drives or road trips. So it depends. But I, I, I think these formats are kind of here to stay for a while, at least. Audio's been around, you know, pretty strong ever, ever since books on tape, you know, cassette audio listening. And then that, you know, has changed over the years to, you know, CDs. Now it's a lot of, a lot of audio is moving into uh, MP3. And so you can get an MP3 disc which some people do, or you can just buy a plain audio CD you can take anywhere and upload like you would songs. Or, you know, I've even seen, actually, this is kind of an interesting thing. It's ca called an audio playaway edition. And essentially what it is, is it's a self-contained MP3 player that you buy. It's very small. It only contains the one audiobook on it you're buying. It has like a play or a wind, a fast forward button on it. And some of them come with like, you know, cheap airport kind of headphones, or you could just plug in your own. I see them at libraries a lot, you know. It's, it seems like a waste, though, you know, to kind of <laughs> buy a tiny MP3 player just to have one little audiobook on it. But they're kind of neat because they actually print the cover of the book right onto the, um, the audio playaway edition. And it, it's kind of nifty if you're, if you're really into that. Suppose if you have a little more disposable income and you just want a side MP3 player to listen to <laughs> audiobooks. Yeah, that'd be that'd be odd signing an an audio player. So I can imagine um, film rights probably aren't as as much as a significant source of um, activity for you, but I imagine it's exciting to secure film rights for a client when that comes up. I've noticed a lot of times, though, when film or TV rights get acquired, sometimes they just kind of sit there and nothing really gets done with them. Yeah, we should mention, I guess, you know, film and TV rights being, you know, kind of a bigger part of uh, this stuff. As, a, you know, a part of most of our agreements with publishers, we make it, you know, pretty much part of a for our form agreement, which we've established with the publishers over the years across all book publishing, we get the very best things in those contracts for our clients because of the clout of the agency, the fact that our business goes to their bottom line. And so, you know, film and TV rights are almost and always inevitably carved out for the author to hold on to. Because, 
U.S. publishers are very ill-equipped, I think, at dealing with film and TV rights. They're, they're not film and TV companies. They're book publishers. Um, Random House mm-hmm. tried to experiment with this where they had like a, a film and TV production company within Random House. I think it was called like Random House Films. They did like a Kate Winslet or Leonardo DiCaprio movie, I think, called, maybe they were in it, called Reservation Road, based on one of their books. And it was, it was like a flop. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we feel we can help the authors with that better. And frankly, you know, the publisher's usually willing to let it go because always the likeliness of that happening is, is very slim. Um, and even when it does, you know, it's kind of like a, a non-business entity almost where... Whereas in the past, from what I hear, you know, folks used to be able to do these, you know, easily, a twenty, twenty-five thousand dollar film option. And you can you can make a viable business of that if you, you know, turn that into kind of like a, a volume sort of business. Whereas today, you know, the options are tiny, maybe two thousand or twenty five hundred bucks. And you really do it more so as a service to the client. The likeliness of it getting made now, because they're primarily like you know a very small handful of of um, you know major studios out there. It's just a lot less likely. It's so much changed when the economy just kind of took a dip, and there weren't investors in films the way there used to be. The Coen Brothers, you know, when they released A Serious Man, it, it wasn't in such wide release. It was more so like an independent film kind of release. They struggled to get funding for their film. I mean, the, the Coen brothers. So mm-hmm. occasionally it does happen in a big way. You know, we've, we've done huge film purchases for some of our clients. We do, we do indeed do a lot of book to film and TV. Like, um, you'll be familiar with Frank Herbert's Dune, uh, which mm-hmm. we did the sci-fi channel revamps of, you know, we did the Isaac Asimov, I robot Will Smith film deal. There's also a TV deal in the works with the Nolan brothers for an adaptation of the Foundation series. I can talk about it because it's sort of out, been out there in the news. Um, so that should be exciting um, that the Nolan brothers, you know, they'll write, they'll direct, they'll produce. And, you know, other stuff kind of outside of sci- science fiction and fantasy. Daniel Woodrell's Winter's Bone, you know, Lewis Acker's Holes, and Michael Andache's The English Patient, to just name a few more. And, you know, it's good. For the author, because I think it's a big confidence booster. It can help promote the book. Even if nothing happens with it. Even if nothing happens with it. You know, inevitably, we let the publisher know. It can generate some excitement there. But when it does happen, it feels like winning the lottery. It just doesn't really end up being a lot of money. It's one big TV commercial for the book, is what it is. <laughs> Do you find usually that film companies approach the author or or you at the agency to to purchase rights to a certain property or do you find yourself farming these things out to see if there are people interested how's that process work sometimes a mixture of both but it's always better i say for the pretty girl to want to ask you to the dance than, than you to <laughs> want to ask her right i sure. i mean in a perfect world so um, oftentimes the film and tv community they watch what's going on in the book community like hawks i mean they have you know scouts they have people who I'm sure look at the catalogs of publishers who watch publishers marketplace for deal announcements. So inevitably when we announce a new deal there with a publisher, they zero in on that. 
And they mm-hmm. write to us right away just say, saying, you know, our film and TV rights available. And sometimes it's just a general inquiry so they can kind of track it as it goes along. But other times they're very seriously interested, you know, at an early stage. I mean, we've been contacted by, you know, Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg's company, you know, about a deal which has just posted. And a lot of this, too, is kind of about the vulnerability of a project when it makes the most sense to approach a film and TV company about it. You know, some film and TV companies say, I want to see this stuff right away as soon as we can, even if you just want to show us a paragraph. But the problem is that a lot of this stuff gets early coverage in in the film and TV community. They all speak. Unfortunately, they have a lot of interns and college kids doing their reading for them, which is absurd. Uh, No one reads in Hollywood. So it's its own problem, but you need to get the right kind of coverage for this stuff. And so I tend to like to go out with stuff where it's it's a final manuscript, but where they ask and they insist, I'll show them something else. You hope to do something good for the client. If it drives, if a movie gets made and it drives people to the bookstore, you know, great. That's what's happened for J.K. Rowling. You know, she's, I'm sure she gets like a big producer credit on the Harry Potter films, and there's some nice merchandising that goes on. But the big thing for her is that it's driving people to the bookstores. And the people who read the book, you know, that's another entry point to the movie. Yeah, that's one of the best, uh, I think, as you mentioned, uh, one of the best ways to get people to buy books is to have as much uh, media available for it as possible. For example, TV or films or any kind of other media. This ties into marketing to, to some degree. Uh, how often do you does an agent have to step in and help with marketing? For example, if the author is kind of more standoffish about marketing or doesn't really believe in getting out there and eh, I wrote the book, I did enough, whatever. Well, <laughs> do you ever have to step in and say anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, crack the whip. I think a a good agent should want to help with that. You know, a lot of agents, I find, have a tendency to be journeymen, you know, very transactional people. They'd rather get in, do the deal, get out, and move on to the next deal because, you know, frankly, they don't know if they're going to be in book publishing tomorrow or working at the agency where they're at. And so they just want to churn the business. Whereas, you know, I tend to like to look at an author's career more holistically. And you're not just in kind of an agent role. You're almost in like a managerial role where... You try to help oversee the author's business. You got to help them build their business bigger, see the horizon, but know what's on the other side of it. And yeah, part of that is the marketing. Film and TV will help, you know, maybe market a book if that happens. The likeliness, again, is very slim. The publisher, to a certain extent, will do some marketing. It tends to be very minimal. Obviously, the big name authors get more attention than the smaller name authors because as opposed to sales, which is money coming into the publisher, marketing is money going out. And so there's a Hmm. set budget for every author. Usually the correlation is maybe how much the publisher paid for the book, what the in-house enthusiasm is like, if it has a large printing. And unfortunately, a lot of this burden ends up inevitably falling on the author's shoulders because, and I think whether you're a huge name author or someone just starting out, It's a big mistake to think, I've written the book, my job here is done, you publish the book. It's not that way anymore. It used to be that way a long time ago, where publishers were 
much bigger. They, 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 they had certain mechanisms in place, and it was a different landscape. Now the author has so much more to do. And so I always tell clients never to think of the publishers anything more than someone who essentially prints the book and puts it out there online in stores. Uh, because if you do come to rely on that publisher, what will happen is if they show you a marketing plan, it's going to be cookie cutter at best. And secondly, there's no guarantee they're going to do it. It's not written into the contract, this stuff. It's very immaterial, hmm. these kind of promises. And so there are certain recommendations I'll make to clients, just sort of in general. Oftentimes I, for instance, encourage a lot of blog outreach. You know, I encourage authors, for instance, to go on your show and to speak and interview with you, um, to get interviewed, to do book reviews, uh, to you know, get their book reviewed on various sites, to do author AMAs on Reddit. And uh, sometimes we even, you know, we'll hire a freelance book publicity firm that, you know, specialize in this kind of stuff. And it's unfortunate, but that can be a pretty penny for the author. But you have to think of it in terms of, you know, whatever you put in, you'll get, you'll hopefully get back, you know. Spend some money to make some money. Exactly. You know, you have to think, not what do I stand to give up by doing this, but what do I stand to gain? Yeah, I think one thing I've seen from uh, from your stable is the uh, Fish Wilder book. I've seen that <laughs> pop up. Uh, That's a lot of fun, that book. It's, uh, I think there's excellent promotion that can tie into that book just because of the title alone. It's, I think it's easy to market something like that because you immediately kind of know the vibe of the story. At least, at least I think I know the vibe of the story based off that. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Fishwilder's kind of like a kind of like a Piers Anthony or Terry Pratchett kind of book. You know, people see the cover, they get the feel for it right away. But because it's so fun and colorful, there have been a lot of opportunities for the author Jim Hardison to uh, to market the book. Like he, for instance, <laughs> he's got, he's kind of gone like in all sorts of directions with with the the stuff. But there, he made like Fishwilder cookies, Fishwilder candies. <laughs> socks, t-shirts, stickers, uh, tattoos. There's like a, uh, there are dolls based off of, um, you know, his books, uh, characters, posters. I mean, what else have I seen? Pins. The list goes on and on. Fishwilder bags, tote bags. I mean, he was, if, if basic mugs, if you can dream it, you know, he was gonna, he was gonna make it. And it's, and it's smart because it's fun it helps, yeah, to market and promote the book. He's kind of like a marketing force just done to himself. His, <laughs> his previous uh, book was actually a graphic novel, which made uh, you know, Yalsa part of uh, the American Library Association's um, like top 10 graphic novel of the year for teens. Dark Horse had published it. And um, this new book of his, which is just a work of fiction, it's almost like that in certain regards. That's interesting because I was going to ask you what's the best promotion you've seen an author do, and I think you just captured that, like just <laughs> trying well, that, trying to do everything and anything, you know. Well, that one's a lot of fun, I'd say. Another aspect of his book was there's this um, pudding of power, which is kind of this all evil pudding contained within this chalice. That if you, you know, it's kind of like how in Lord of the Rings you have the ring. In his book, it's the pudding of power. And so at his book signing, he made pudding for everyone. Uh, <laughs> That's cool. But some of the what I find works best 
in terms of author promotions for books is to be perfectly honest with you there there's a book there's a service to authors called bookbub which you may have heard of yeah, mm-hmm. yeah we've talked about it on we the did show or you you guys maybe did it in no we we've had we've had guests who've talked well, about just, it on the, you know, the holy just, grail <laughs> yeah the yeah. putting of power of you know bookbubs or uh, but basically just yeah i guess you've if you've explained it before but since we no, give us well, give us your insight on on BookBub and uh, how advantageous well, that it is start, to authors. I think BookBub started out small and then became very big. Now it's very overcrowded, but I find it's one of the only kind of marketing promotions that works really well for authors nowadays. And essentially, what the idea is, it's a newsletter service. Uh, readers subscribe um, for a limited time. Authors who take part in the BookBub promotion. It's a paid promotion, first of all, so you have to pay BookBub for this service. Mm-hmm. But they lower the price of your book, you know, to a low price. They promote it in their newsletter, and it goes out to readers. And for a limited time, they can get the book at a certain price. I think the smartest thing to do is, you know, the lower you go, the better. It's what's worked for Amazon really well. You know, they practice this predatory pricing where you saw ninety-nine cent eBooks, and it under cut the business of a lot of publishers and a lot of folks thought well how are you going to make money selling dollar ebooks well it's kind of like those mcdonald hamburgers you sell a lot of them and eventually your margins start to look better and it becomes a little bit of something is better than a lot of nothing and um i find another thing it helps with authors apart from moving books is it helps them climb in the sales rankings of amazon you know they have a top 100 they have individual categories it helps them get noticed on the sites a lot better and another thing it helps is um sometimes those books go on to hit bestseller lists like the new york times list the usa list i have a client who hit the usa list the other week when we ran one of those promos for her we we have a digital Mm -hmm. media and publishing program at trident where we do that for clients and so we had nominated her book uh for that um, but it's also tricky too because with BookBub, it's a um, it's also a, an editorial process too, in a sense, as you would ex- expect with a publisher. They they um, look at the books being nominated, and they decide what to include or what not to include. But I find it's it's a very strong promotion because of that newsletter aspect. And so, short of an author doing BookBub, they should be maintaining a newsletter of their own. You know. Getting the word out mm-hmm. there about their book and approaching readers through through a newsletter is huge. That's one of those things that um, I've always puzzled puzzled over to an extent. It is um, how do you get people to sign up for a newsletter? Because that's essentially sending them emails on sure. semi regular basis, and maybe people may feel iffy about that. Obviously, you can't just sign people up your newsletter willy-nilly it's actually uh, legal to do that you <laughs> <Yeah>. have to <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I mean people i was gonna say people do that anyway but <laughs> I, you you're supposed to ask them and the easiest way to do that is you know maybe you write to some friends and family or put this out out there on Facebook, whatever. Sometimes I'll go to a writer's conference and I'll see people. They'll have like a giveaway where maybe you win a t-shirt or a mug or whatever if you sign up for the newsletter. And so you put your name and email on a list 
And so that's, yeah, one way to go about it. A good newsletter service, I find, is uh, MailChimp because you can look at a lot of the metrics of that stuff. I find it's really popular with authors. And, you know, obviously, apart from this, you know, newsletter stuff in marketing your book, you want to look to social media, like um, you want to look at uh, Twitter, Facebook, and, and other venues. It's, it's a very crowded landscape. Even if you're, for some reason, going the self-publishing route, where there's over 8 million books on, on Amazon, and you're trying to differentiate yourself, if you just throw your book up there on a server and don't put any wind in the sails, it's never going to get the attention it needs. One other title that I uh, wanted to talk about is The Dragon's Legacy by Deborah A. Wolf. Uh, I think that got pushed to April. Yeah, April 2017. April 2017. But she was on the show in our Controversies and Grimdark episodes. Folks can check the show notes. We're going to have Mark's previous appearance in the show notes. We're going to have Deb Wolf's appearance. But uh, everybody's pretty excited about Deb Wolf. A lot of uh, early buzz for The Dragon's Legacy, and people are pretty yeah, excited. Yeah, I thought about she it. gave a great interview on your show. So thanks for having her on. I, I think you guys were maybe thinking of having her back on the show. Most yeah. definitely. Yeah, once in April. It's been a lot of fun. And I think, uh, you know, she's been. Well, obviously, just she got the first part of it right, which is, you know, not any one part of this is enough. She's written a beautiful book. You know, I think she's she's smart about how she wants to market it. She has a good publisher behind her in Titan Books. Yeah, it's exciting. It's it's a beautiful book. They really nailed the cover and and the title. It, it had formerly had a different title. Great advance praise already coming in. People are kind of looking at it like... Um, kind of like a Guy Gabriel K. Serentine Mosaic kind of book, you know, a, a medieval fantasy set entirely in the Middle East, not unlike, you know, I guess the Dothraki people in Game of Thrones or even some of the darker fol folkloric tales of Arabian Nights. It's going to be so much fun, and I hope the best for her in that book. And we are almost out of time, Mark. We're just about ready to wrap up here. But are there any titles that might kind of fit the grim, dark vibe, the dark fantasy, horror, darker fiction that you might have forthcoming? I would say we obviously mentioned, you know, Deborah Wolf's book. You also mentioned Jim Hardison's book. It kind of starts out in a dark way since you have this kind of archetype barbarian character, but he's uh, he's depressed and an alcoholic, and wants to kind of end it all. <laughs> that fits. Had, that fits our vibe. <laughs> he kind of finds reason to live. But, you know, in, ter in terms of that stuff, um, you know, there is actually um, a new release that will be coming out from Nightshade Books, part of Skyhorse Publishing, from Tina LeCount Myers. It's very early on, but um, she has a three-part series, and much like Deborah Wolf's book or Beowulf, in a sense, it's almost written like an entire song, like this, you know, like the ancient epic fantasies wow. were, were told. And um, yeah, it all takes place basically what you would expect from kind of north of the wall in Game of Thrones. And so it's all kind of in a very wintry, Icelandic sort of world. And actually, um, you know, the author, she has um, like a background. Uh, her family has a uh, background um, from Finland. You know, she was there over the summer. I imagine maybe that helps with the research of some of her books. So I think that will be a very exciting one to watch. There's always exciting stuff coming from Trident for authors that we represent that you'll find. For instance, I had mentioned Guy Gabriel Kay on the show. 
he's a regular client, Sherilyn Kenyon as well. But the book of, of Tina Myers that I was thinking about is actually called The Songs of All. The second book is called Dreams of the Dark Sky, and the third book will be called The Northern Ones. And like I mentioned, we pitched it as reminiscent of George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, and actually N.K. Jemisin's The Fifth Season, uh, where you have these two ancient tribes that are pitted against each other uh, when illusions of individual power threaten to destroy their fragile coexistence. Uh, and caught between is this once legendary immortal hunter who's been given a choice whether to reclaim his calling as a hunter or to lose his child. So I think it fits nicely within kind of that grimdark sort of world. Mm-hmm. But other than, other than that, I think just, again, the regular sort of staples um, that folks have seen from our agency. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Mark, it's great to have you back on the show. I think we're just going to check in probably every <laughs> six months with Mark Gottlieb and just uh, bring you on and uh, pick your brain and see what's going on in the industry. And no doubt you have uh, uh, bucket loads of information to share from your perspective as uh, being one of the top uh, agents in the country. So no doubt you've got a spot here on the show. So we'll definitely have you back on in the future. I appreciate you having me on the show again. Always glad to come back and, and say hi. So tridentmediagroup.com is the website folks can go to. They can find you on there, Mark Gottlieb. And you're uh, taking taking on new clients, right? If people want to query you, there's a query process there yeah, on the website, we're correct? taking on new clients. Glad to look at new work. If you go to tridentmediagroup.com, there's a submissions, contact us page there. Very simple form that you fill out with instructions and just, you know, hit submit. And uh, we do indeed read all our queries. So thanks for keeping us in mind. You can find us online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. And be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. 